Good morning. Good morning. Welcome to church. It's wonderful to see you guys this morning. If you would stand with us, we're going to sing. I'm going to pray for us real quick. Father, thank you for this day, and thank you for this opportunity to come and gather together to just worship you. God, we're so grateful to be here in person, and we're grateful for the opportunity for those who can gather with us online. We are thankful, and we are just going to take a moment to fix our eyes on you and to allow all the things that distract us from you in our day-to-day lives to just be pushed to the side for this moment so that we can receive and give our praises to you. Amen. Let's do it.
I'm going to read this call to worship for you guys, Psalms chapter 1. It says, Blessed is the one who does not walk in step with the wicked, or stand in the way that sinners take, or sit in the company of mockers, but whose delight is in the law of the Lord, and who meditates on his law day and night. That person is like a tree planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in season, and whose leaf does not wither. Whatever they do prospers. Not so the wicked. They are like chaff that the wind blows away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the assembly of the righteous. For the Lord watches over the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked leads to destruction. Amen. This is the word of the Lord this morning. is the power of Christ in 
seated. If I can, I'd like to share some thoughts before we move into a time of corporate prayer. Um, Can I share a testimony? Is that still a thing? Is that still socially acceptable in the church to share testimonies? Um, I have a testimony. So a few weeks ago, I stood right here after a song that, or a few songs that just kept bringing me back to the story of the woman at the well. Uh, For whatever reason, that was put on my heart. For whatever reason, that moment in scripture kept coming to mind. And as I kind of stood up here and shared that with you, thinking that someone out there needed to hear it, um, as I was praying and processing through that, it became increasingly clear that I was the person who was so thirsty. As I stood up here and prayed, you know, I did that pastor thing where I'm like, ooh, someone in here needs this. (laughs) Someone in here needs this. I feel it, and I'm going to give it to them. And the more I talked about it and processed through, I was like, oh, that's me. Um, And I just felt in that moment, I just kind of embraced the dry, thirsty tired and overwhelmed feelings that I had been feeling. And so I went to PalCon this week, Pastors and Leaders Conference in Nashville at Trevecca Nazarene University. And had I paid attention to things like marketing and programming, I would have known what the theme was, but I didn't really pay a lot of attention, to be honest. I just signed up, and I was like, yes, I need that. And we get there, and the theme for PalCon was a deeper well. And as the days went on, as the week went on, it became increasingly clear that I am not the only pastor that feels dry and tired and thirsty. And I felt so seen in that moment And every sermon that was so perfectly and beautifully preached reminded us, a room full of pastors, that what we need in this moment is not a better approach, five-step approach to ministry. We don't need to, to sit in a room and be taught on here's what to do to grow your church, here's what to do to secure your budgets, but what we needed, what pastors across this country and region needed was to be reminded that we must draw near and from the well that is Jesus. And so that's what we did. And I so badly wish, I feel like a teenager that just got back from church camp. That's how good it is. (laughs) On a scale from one to a teenager on fire after church camp, that's where I'm at. Um, But it's a lot more chill, like refreshed kind of fire. Um, But if I could bottle up what we all experienced in that sanctuary and bring it back to you, I would. And hopefully I can and will. But it was beautiful to worship in a room full of pastors and people who were very well aware 
and weren't afraid to show their desperate desire and need for God. And as we collectively cried out and lingered in this space and just kept on asking for more, he gave more. It's crazy. Like if you sit in a place long enough and continue to call out and ask for more, he'll give you more. It's crazy. And so as we go into a time of prayer, I just want to encourage you. I want to challenge you. It's okay to declare your need for God. It is okay to not pretend like you have it all together because multiple pastors who are more qualified and whom I greatly respect said, they told me it's okay. You don't have to have it all together. You don't have to have all of this figured out because we know the one who does. And so it's okay to draw near to him. It's okay to cry out to him. It's okay to be undone before him. Don't cover that up or hide that. And so this morning, if there are people in here, I'm sure that there are people in here who would say, you know what? We sang it is well with my soul, but it's not. Maybe there are some in here who can say it is well and thanks be to God. But maybe there are some who would say, it's not well with my soul. I can't give you a five-point sermon on how to make things well with your soul. But friend, I will hold your hand and together we will come before the Lord. And we will ask him, we will plead with him to fill us up so that we can say, it is well. Would you join me in prayer this morning? God, I'm overwhelmed this week at your timing and your goodness and your faithfulness. God, I thank you for knowing exactly what we need, the very moment we need it, even before we know we need it. God, I I am a living testimony this morning that it is so easy, it is so easy to get caught up in the busyness of life and checking off all the boxes and doing all the things and trying to keep my head above water as the world seemingly falls apart and crumbles all around us. And Lord, there are moments where I cry out and lament that I can't do it. God, I am so well aware of how unqualified and incapable I am of doing this that you've called me to do. And I have a sense, Lord, that I'm not alone this morning. I have a hunch that there are others in the room who may not be pastors, but who feel what I am feeling. God, I thank you for the reminder that it's okay to be aware of this feeling. 
It is good and helpful as productive, Western-minded American people who feel so capable and confident that we can do everything and we don't have to stop, we don't have to slow down, we can just keep going and going because that's what we do. I am thankful, Lord, that there are moments where we are brought down, we are humbled We are physically, emotionally, and mentally depleted as we are reminded that we cannot do it all. That we are trying to do so much more than we can actually do. All while forgetting to come back to the one, to draw near to the one, the only one who can fill us, renew us, and sustain us. And so God, we come before you this morning. Some of us come before you with joyful hearts. Those who have experienced your, your, your works and your nearness maybe recently, and they can truly say through the goodness and graciousness of God that it is well with my soul. But God, we also know that there must be people here today or tuning in this morning who would say, if I'm being honest, it's not. And God, through your Holy Spirit, you help us discern what it is that isn't well. But first and foremost, God, you meet us where we are. You meet us in a personal way. God, we we just stop and say thank you for being a God of the universe, the Lord of all creation, the God of the cosmos, and yet you so intimately and perfectly know us and see us right where we are. So God, I pray that for those who are hurting, for those who feel broken, God, I pray that you would draw near to them this morning. God, I I plead, would you draw near to them and fill them like you have filled me over these past few days? God, would you just fill this room with your presence, with your undeniable, powerful presence? And may we not rush past this moment But instead, may we just want to linger here a little while longer. So come, Lord. Come, Lord Jesus. God, we just pause and give you this moment. God, we thank you again. I thank you, Lord, for your goodness and for your faithfulness. You are faithful. God, I know that you will continue to be with us, that you will continue to guide us. And if we open up ourselves to you and to the 
to the life-changing power and renewing power of your Holy Spirit, God, you will faithfully continue to fill us and fulfill us and meet our needs. So God, we thank you again. We praise you, God. We thank you, Lord Jesus. We love you, Holy Spirit. Continue to be with us as we open up your word. God, may you guide us and direct us and teach us this morning. Would you soften our hearts? Humble us this morning so that we can hopefully hear from you what it is we need to hear. We love you, Lord, and we pray this in the name of Jesus. And everyone said, amen, amen. Well, if you will, turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 8. We're also going to be reading from the screen this morning. We are in the middle of, not really in the the middle, middle, but we are in a series uh, where we are looking at the gospel of Luke. And um, we are, are just simply opening ourselves up to the gospel of Luke and, and its unique traits, uh, specifically one that I've shared with you that has, been, that has stood out to me recently and one that I just kind of wanted to share with you all is Luke's ability to highlight the stories of the unnamed people in, the gos- in his gospel, the people who would be considered by society or the church, you know, the, the church as outsiders or marginalized, those on the fringes. And there's just this beautiful thing that Luke does where he brings these stories to the surface. And we see the stories of people who who brokenly come before Jesus, and these are all of those who are desperate for Jesus. And, And so what we're left with is we're left with this challenge of how the Pharisees and the religious leaders responded to this. And how those who just wanted Jesus responded to these invitations. That's kind of where we're at in Luke. So I'm just going to invite you to stand this morning, if you're able, for the reading of God's holy living word. And we're going to read from Luke chapter 8, verses 40 through 56. Now when Jesus returned, a crowd welcomed him, for they were all expecting him. Then a man named Jairus, a synagogue leader, came and fell at Jesus' feet, pleading with him to come to his house because his only daughter, a girl of about 12, was dying. As Jesus was on his way, the crowds almost crushed him. And a woman was there who had been subject to bleeding for 12 years, but no one could heal her. She came up behind him, And touched the edge of his cloak, and immediately her bleeding stopped. Who touched me? Jesus asked. When they all denied it, Peter said, Master, the people are crowding and pressing against you. But Jesus said, Someone touched me. I know that power has gone out from me. Then the woman, seeing that she could not go unnoticed, came trembling and fell at his feet. In the presence of all the people, she told why she had touched him and how she had been instantly healed. Then Jesus said to her, daughter, your faith has healed you. 
Go in peace. While Jesus was still speaking, someone came from the house of Jairus, the synagogue leader. Your daughter is dead, he said. Don't bother the teacher anymore. Hearing this, Jesus said to Jairus, don't be afraid. Just believe and she will be healed. When he arrived at the house of Jairus, he did not let anyone go in with him except Peter, John, and James and the child's father and mother. Meanwhile, all the people were wailing and mourning for her. Stop wailing, Jesus said. She is not dead, but asleep. They laughed at him, knowing that she was dead. But he took her by the hand, and he said, My child, get up. Her spirit returned, and at once she stood up. Then Jesus told them to give her something to eat. Her parents were astonished, but he ordered them not to tell anyone what had happened. Friends, this is the word of the Lord this morning for the people of God. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. I'm going to ask you a question this morning. Forgive me for not easing right into this today. We're just jumping in. That's typically what I do. I don't... It's not natural for me to fluff it up with a, a, a story that's related but unrelated. Like, this is the best I had this week for this sermon. And so just forgive me as we jump right in with a super challenging question. But I want to ask you this morning, be honest with yourself. Is it a normal habit for you to label people? Is it a normal habit for you to look at a person? Maybe you're just looking at them, or maybe you know something about them, and you attach a label to that person. Is this a normal thing that you do? Is this a normal thing that we do? Now, hear me out. I don't love asking a question that encourages us to categorize people in this way. I would not typically encourage us to label people or, or allow a lot of room for, for entertaining that. But I also think that whether or not I ask the question, I think this is something that we often do. Right? I think that if we're being really honest, like it's just you and Jesus in this moment. I'm not asking you to write this down or raise your hand. You don't even have to nod. You don't even have to look at me. You can look down. Be honest. Is this something we do, Christians? Is this something we do? Do we attach labels to people? Do we put people in certain categories? Do we put them in certain boxes, whether it's based on what they look like or, or how they dress or, or their lifestyle, or if we know something about them? Do we do this? And again this morning, or something I want to acknowledge this morning is, I don't want to assume that there's not anyone, that, that there's not someone here who, who's on the receiving end of this. Like, we just should acknowledge that there may be some in our midst who feel like they have been labeled. There may be some here who feel like have, they have been the victim of a Christian labeling them or judging them or putting them in a certain category, putting them in a certain box based on one thing or another. Regardless, I need to confess this morning that I worry that this is perhaps one of the more destructive aspects of Christianity, is that we tend to fall into this habit of labeling people and putting them in certain categories. 
And I have an example that is really good, but really painful all at the same time. It's good in the fact that it supports what I'm saying, but it's not so good. Well, you'll, you'll see what I mean. So one time at church camp, um, when I was an early teenager, the speaker was on the subject of things like modesty and purity. And we, you know, we addressed all the things, right? I don't have to go into detail. Like, you've all been there. Or you know what I'm talking about. Like, we, we went there, right? We had the super awkward conversation. And, and one of the things we talked about, or the speaker talked about, was purity and modesty. And something that I need you to understand this morning is that I admire this speaker greatly. Like, this is someone who personally has ministered to me, and there are some things that the Lord did in my life because of this particular speaker. So what I'm saying is not meant to speak ill of the this, of this speaker, not speaking ill of the speaker, but the speaker used this example that, that I, think, I think they had good intentions. They were just trying to find a way to like connect with teenagers, what they were trying to say. And so the speaker came up with this analogy. And, then the, and the, the analogy was essentially that there are girls, young teenage girls, who might dress a certain way, right? Who might dress a certain way that is not good, that is not modest, that is not pleasing, it's not holy, right? And, and the speaker compared girls who might dress a certain provocative way. He said, this, these girls are often compared to, think about like an old Ford truck. It's not desirable, like a clunky Ford truck. It's not something that you're drawn to. It's not really desirable, like people who are in the business for a car, I guess, they don't gravitate towards an old junkie beater Ford truck, right? I laughed too at the time, but now I, I cringe and die inside a little bit, just to be honest. And so the, on the opposite end, you have girls who care about modesty and purity and girls who take seriously this call to dress in a way that protects other people. We won't even get into that today. But those girls are compared to a car like a Lamborghini or a Ferrari. That's desirable. And so a guy who is in the market for, again, a car, I guess, is drawn to a, to a car like a Lamborghini or a Ferrari. It's been, it's new, it's clean, it's not dirty, it's not used. It probably just sits in the garage, you know, it's not used, it's it's, it's desirable, right? This is a true story, by the way. This isn't one of those things where I make up something to try to, to make a point. This is a true story. And, and I need to ask you this morning, do you see a problem with this analogy? Do you see an issue with it? If the answer is no, I need to challenge you to open up your heart this morning and allow the Lord to wrestle with you for a moment. Because at the time, I didn't see this as problematic because, to be honest, well, I, I knew how to dress modestly. It had been pounded in me my whole life, and so this was an issue. And so the problem with this analogy is that there were no doubt girls in this room, young girls in this room, who were just compared to an old, dirty, used Ford truck that no one wants. They were just made to feel shamed 
and unwanted and unworthy and undesirable. And for everyone else in the room who weren't, we weren't that person, we were just given permission to label girls. And, and if that's not the point, that's what we got out of it because that's what we did. In fact, I cringe through all of this, you guys. In fact, as we left church camp and when we would go on various youth outings, teenage boys, like, you know, you can't take them anywhere anyways, but then you give them something like that. And I'm ashamed to say, you know, that we would walk around and they would yell out things or say things like, oh, Ford truck, uh-oh, incoming Ford truck. And that makes me sad. Like, this, this is meant to be a, a story that should be heartbreaking. Because this was a church camp that is that's highly respected and beloved and did good things. But this is one of those examples where we have been given permission to put people in certain boxes and attach to them certain labels that dehumanize them and make them feel like they are unworthy and unloved and unwanted. And that, my friends, is not of Christ. That's not of Christ. Here's the thing. We all do stuff like that. We're all guilty of doing things like that. We have all taught, listen, I was a youth pastor for 10 years. I promise you, I taught things that looking back now, I cringe. I cringe and I'm so embarrassed that there are certain things that I taught because I thought that was good and right at the time. But as I have allowed myself to be fully open before the Lord and allowing him to mold me and shape me and not necessarily the Christian culture around me alone, apart from scripture, I've been convicted. I'm really hot right now. I'm really sweaty and hot because I know how tense and uncomfortable you all are that I just called that out. Friends, what I'm not saying is, what I'm saying is there are good and healthy ways to discuss things with our daughters, things like purity. and like There is a healthy and good and biblical way and a Christ-like way to talk about these things. I'm not suggesting that we don't talk about these things and that anything goes. But I'm afraid that this approach, and there are so many more examples we could point to, I'm afraid things like this miss the mark. And I'm afraid that things like this do more damage than anything, again, putting people in these labeled boxes and then staying far, far away. In this passage, we see two things going on. We have this prominent Jewish leader, Jairus, who was a beloved and respected member of the Jewish community. People would see Jairus and they would think good things. They would attach to him good labels like respected and and, and lover of God and follower of God and teacher and leader. And that's fine. That's totally fine. I'm not arguing or disputing any of those labels, but that's the reality. He was a respected, beloved leader in his community. And we certainly certainly have compassion on him as he has just come to Jesus, as we all would do if our 12-year-old daughter was sick and nearly dying near death, we would absolutely go find where Jesus is and we would come to him and we would plead, come and touch my daughter, she's dying. 
And so, of course, we have compassion. This is a heartbreaking story, but it's so interesting that Luke pairs this story with Jairus and the daughter. He, com- he pairs this story with that of an awkward, bleeding woman, right? Have you ever read this story and just wondered, like, these two going and intersecting, going together is just so fascinating and interesting. And so Luke brings to, to the top, to, the, to our minds, this woman, who is also desperate for a healing touch from Jesus. But there's a problem. She's unclean. She has been marked by society and the Jewish law as unclean. She should not be in public. She should be at home. She should not be trying to get near Jesus. She shouldn't be trying to get near to anybody. Because of Jewish uh, purity laws, she is unclean, and a bleeding woman would not, by any circumstances, be allowed to be in public around a group of people. And here, like, we need to pause for a second and just acknowledge the purity laws that are, that are present here. Like, we, we understand that this is far removed for us. We don't understand these things. We don't live under these purity laws. We live under the blood of the new covenant, But we need to understand for a moment, flip back to Leviticus 15, not now, maybe later, and re-familiarize yourself with the Jewish cleanliness purity laws, because that's where this woman falls in. This particular law can be found in Leviticus chapter 15, verses 19 through 33. I'm not going to go into great detail this morning, because we don't need to necessarily acknowledge that in the pulpit, but you can go and quickly read, and you'll figure out why this woman was not allowed to be in public. It's pretty obvious, right? Some of these laws, I got to be honest, some of them make sense. Like, I understand, I respect that in ancient, ancient Jewish culture, there was not access to what we know as good health care or modern medicine. That's a luxury that we have today that they did not have. And so it makes sense to me that there were certain laws that kept you separated from people at certain moments where you might make someone else sick or or share something with them that could take their life right we understand that other there are other jewish laws that i don't understand frankly and that's okay i don't that's i just acknowledge that and accept that and move on but what you need to understand is that because of the jewish purity laws this woman should not have been where she was period the end she should not have been in this group of people and so for 12 years And we love how Luke so beautifully highlights that, right? That for as long as this child has been alive, that's dying, this woman has been sick and bleeding. And for 12 years, this unnamed woman has been an outsider in her community. By the way, fun fact, not just because she was ritually unclean, but because she was a woman, And women in that society were not respected. They were often on the margins. And so she's kind of got two things going against her. She was a woman and she was an unclean woman. So for 12 years, she was pushed to the fringes. For 12 years, she was labeled impure and unclean. For 12 years, we have to assume that she was alone. Because A, she was either married and her husband would have divorced her because she's unclean for 12 years, or B, she was never married because she's unclean. No one could be around her. 
So she likely lived alone. I guess there's maybe the third option of the husband just removes himself for as long as she's sick. I don't know. But the fact remains, she was alone for 12 years. For 12 years, you need to understand she would have lived in poverty because a single woman would be living in poverty, most single women. And for 12 years, she was trying to find someone who could cure her. And I don't think they did that for free. So she was living in poverty for 12 years. For 12 years, she would remain untouched and could not touch another human being because touching them would render them unclean. For 12 years, we have to imagine that in a sense, she was separated from God, at least in her eyes. I don't believe that God would separate himself from her because that's not the God I know. But, but in her eyes, she was separated from God. She was separated from her worship community. She certainly couldn't go worship God in the synagogue. She could not be in the synagogue with other people. And so I have to imagine that in her mind, she felt separated from God because you had to go to the synagogue to worship and experience the presence of God. For 12 years... Culture essentially communicated to this woman, you aren't welcome. You aren't clean. You will defile everyone around you. So just stay away. And as much as she would have had to isolate herself from society, society would have even more isolated themselves from her. And here's the thing. I understand. I understand that we don't live under these ancient Jewish laws, right? I said that already. We live under the blood of the new covenant. However, I think it's safe to assume that oftentimes we Christians live separated from those who have been labeled unclean, impure, and those who make us feel uncomfortable and icky because of how they live. Is that a safe assumption to say, for the most part, generally speaking, this doesn't include or apply to everyone all the time? But I think for the most part, especially over the years, and listen, I gave you a peek into my childhood, that this is what I grew up thinking, right? By people who I know loved the Lord and loved us and just did the best that they could with what they had. But, but in a way that formed me and shaped me to grow up looking at people and, and labeling them as certain things and then finding out how I could kind of keep them at a distance. Like I was, whether it's intentional or not, I, I believe it was not intentional, but I was more discipled on how to like separate from people who were unclean and impure than I was discipled on how to love them like Jesus would love them or does love them. And if we, friends, it's not getting any easier. If we look at, a, at any given church on a Sunday morning, Again, not all churches all the time, but just take a look in, in many churches on a Sunday morning and you will see that for the most part, there is a certain type of people in the sanctuary, for the most part, right? People who look a certain way, people who are put together, people who do this but don't do this, right? This is what is reflected in a lot of our circles, and that's assuming, like, there are churches that, that have people in there who, 
who don't look like everyone else, that don't act like everyone else, and don't live like everyone else. And to me, that should be totally normal. That should be the norm. But that's assuming that those people are even welcome in these circles. And so I guess that that's the question that we need to ask first is, are people who don't look like us, who don't talk like us, who don't act like us, who don't live like us, are they welcome in this space? Like, I don't mean, oh, of course. Like, we're not going to tell them they're not welcome, Pastor Nicole. Wow, how highly you think of us. Of course they're welcome here. I don't mean welcome as in they can come into the building. I mean welcome as will you go up to them and, and appropriately greet them and go out of your way to let them know how welcomed they are in this space? That's what I mean by welcomed. I hope and pray, and, and I, I certainly don't think that people would be unwelcome in this circle. But I hope and I pray that all of us, that if all of us comes across someone who, again, doesn't look like us, act like us, live like us, talk like us, maybe someone that we could easily label one thing or another, I hope that they would be welcomed and embraced in this circle. I hope that you would find a Sunday where you can take them to lunch. I hope they're welcome in your home, around your children, right? This is what I mean by welcome. And if not, and if, if the answer is they're just not, if that's the answer, then we need to be honest. And then we need to pray, Lord, have mercy and cleanse our hearts. Because Jesus in this moment, he sets a precedent. I need you to understand that. Jesus in this moment with this woman, he sets a precedent. In this moment, Jesus welcomes a physical touch from a woman who should not be touching people. She broke a law. She's a lawbreaker. I need you to understand that. This is serious. I know we don't connect or relate because this is not our reality, but that is her reality. She broke a Jewish law by coming close to Jesus and touching him. She shouldn't be touching anyone, let alone a male Jewish rabbi. Like, come on, this is, this is very obvious. Everyone knows that you don't do that. And yet she does, and Jesus welcomes it. While society would work to keep her on the outside, making her feel shamed and excluded, Jesus stops dead in his tracks when he is on his way to heal someone's daughter. And he looks at her and calls her daughter. By society, she has just been labeled excluded, unwelcome, unwanted. And Jesus calls her daughter, which could not communicate more inclusion, more welcomeness, more love, more healing, and more wholeness. And this is significant because as I think about this story, and as I think about, and pastors do typically highlight this aspect of the story, that Jesus was in a rush, right? And he stopped, he made time to, to, to notice this woman. But really, if you think about it, 
Why did, I mean, he had a pressing issue, and I guess he's Jesus. Like, of course he can bring this daughter back to life, but how traumatic is it for the parents to have to deal with the reality that she's dead, that she's no longer living? Like, that adds a whole extra level of trauma to the story, and Jesus knows that. So why, instead of just letting the power come from him, why didn't he just keep on moving, Right? Like, and then kind of smiling because he knew that someone just received a healing touch. Why does he stop when this crowd is crushing him and it's like sweaty and messy and there's people everywhere and there is probably a little unsafe and and he stops and Jairus has got to be just panicked beyond belief. Why does Jesus stop instead of just knowing that she was healed? I am convinced that it's because he wanted this woman to know without a shadow of a doubt that she's seen, that she is loved, that she is welcome, that she is wanted, knowing that she was going to feel embarrassed and like, oh my goodness, I'm going to have to go out in front of everyone and tell them what I've done. Jesus knew all of this, and I think that's how important it was for him that this woman feels seen for the first time in 12 years. In a society where women, especially bleeding women, were told, you're unworthy, you're unclean, you're unwanted, you're unwelcome, you're broken, you're marginalized, Jesus says, you are welcome. You are worthy. Daughter, you are loved You are seen. I love how scholar David Neal puts it. He says, brace yourselves, grace and rogue piety trump ritual practice and tradition in this story. He says the instrument of separation from God, the instruments of separation from God are deconstructed in this narrative. He says, ritual impurity and sin no longer exclude a sinful woman from the presence of the Son of God. And I'm going to stop right there, because he goes on, but I'm going to stop right there and, and, and address what you might be thinking. And that is, well, this woman wasn't necessarily sinful. She was just ill, right? Like she just suffered from a disease. There's nothing saying that she was sinful. But Luke chapter 7 tells a story of a sinful woman who is also welcomed into the presence of Jesus when she should not have been there. She had no physical infirmities, no diseases, no sicknesses that we were aware of, no illness. She was just a sinful woman who would have been just as marginalized. She would have been called all the same things and more because of her sinful lifestyle, and yet Jesus calls her welcome. He calls her worthy. He calls her loved, and he would without a doubt, call her daughter as well. So we need to know that. I'm going to say it again. Ritual impurity and sin no longer exclude a sinful woman from the presence of the Son of God. Disease, death, and demonic possession, Luke chapter 8, which long separated their victims from God, now have the power suddenly overturned and broken. The dead are raised. The sick are healed, and the demon-possessed regain their right minds. Jesus' touch 
overcomes conventional notions of uncleanliness by reversing the flow of impurity, instead making clean those who touch him. Are you with me? There's just been a reversal that's happened in this passage. Years and years of doing things a certain way has just been undone. Jesus has set a precedent. And church, we are to follow that example, right? You might say, well, that was Jesus, and I'm not Jesus. I recall places in scripture that say something along the lines of, whoever claims to live in him must live as Jesus did. So what Jesus does, we do. How Jesus lived, we live. How Jesus responds to those who have been labeled certain things, we are also to respond in those exact same ways. That's what Christians do. We are followers and disciples of Christ seeking to look and act and live like Christ. And we do so confident. We do so unafraid that their, that their unholiness or that their impurity is going to like, like we're going to catch it, right? We, we interact and draw near and love those who we've labeled unclean. We are not afraid that we're going to be infected. We're not afraid that, that we're going to catch whatever it is that they have, whatever sin it is. We're, we're not afraid that we're going to somehow catch that, but instead we're going to remain confident that Jesus' healing power and Jesus' healing touch is enough to cleanse and purify Therefore, we can confidently draw near to and love those who society says is unclean, impure, not welcome. So, we're nearing the end here. Jesus stops. He wants to make sure that this woman is seen and heard and loved and healed. He's making a very important point. And because he does so, Jairus' daughter dies. Right? Like, you might as well stop him. There's no need to bring him home over here now. Because, by the way, you also can't come in, into contact with dead corpses. That's also in, un, unclean and impure. So don't bother. She's already dead. And Jesus, you know, we already read that. He says, don't be afraid, but believe. Isn't it remarkable that a healthy 12-year-old girl is closing in on the darkness of death, as scholar Reuben Welch says, while this woman is returning to hope and life in Jesus. And for a brief moment, as this daughter has just breathed her last breath, this 12-year-old daughter, for a brief moment, we are reminded that not every storm is stilled. Not every demon is exercised. Not every sick person is healed. But these incidents show that the light is breaking in and darkness has been overcome. That's scholar David Neal again. So Jesus says, don't be afraid, but believe. And because of that, because of Jesus' willingness to again defy the, the purity laws, because you were not supposed to be in the room of a dead body, because of Jesus breaking through those barriers, this little girl is raised back to life. Thanks be to God that Jesus didn't consider anyone off limits. 
I like how one pastor said, the touch of Christ is strong enough to overcome any impurity, any stigma. Friends, what I want you to understand this morning is that no one, no one was off limits for Jesus. The question is, is anyone off limits for us? And and by deciding that, that there are those who are off limits, for whatever reason, if that's the honest truth, then I have to ask, I have to press in a little harder and say and ask, have we underestimated the cleansing, purifying, healing, and redeeming power found in the touch, body, and blood of Christ? So as the praise team comes back up this morning, I want to acknowledge hopefully everyone in the room right where you are as you maybe respond to this passage. I wonder this morning, and I kind of asked at the beginning, maybe there's someone here who identifies with this woman for one reason or another, this unnamed, unwanted, unwelcome woman. You don't have to be a woman, by the way, to, to relate and to identify. Men are made to feel that way too. But I just wonder, is there anyone here who feels eternally stained? You've been labeled. You've been labeled by the church, by Christians. You've been taught how to be labeled. Maybe there's some here who feel completely unworthy. And it's by the grace of God that you can even sit here this morning. Or maybe you're watching online because you don't feel like you can sit here this morning. If that's you, I want you to know that Jesus wants you to know that you are seen. You are seen. You do not go unnoticed. You are loved. You are wanted. You're not dirty. You're welcome and you're loved. And Jesus wants to make you pure. He wants to purify and cleanse you from the inside out. But first and foremost, he wants you to know that you are loved. Maybe there's some of you, I have a feeling that a lot of us can relate to this one. Maybe for some of us in this room, we aren't that person, but we know that person. Maybe some of us are married to that person. Maybe some of us are dating that person. Maybe some of us mother or father that person. We are that person's sibling. We are that person's grandparent. We are that person's friend and ally. Maybe for some, you aren't this person, but you know this person and your heart breaks just as much because you know that they aren't welcome, that they feel unloved and unworthy. And if that's you, if you know this person, if a face and a name comes to mind, I want to challenge you to ask Jesus how he can use you to remind them that they are seen and loved. And I know that he will show you. And finally this morning, 
I think the church, we must ask the question. We must. Is there anyone, for whatever reason, that we have deemed or labeled unclean, unwanted, impure, unholy? And how do we justify that in the light of what Christ has done? In the light of the example that was set, how can we justify that? And so if that's us, that's been me. I confess, right here, right now, that has been me. We need to ask the Lord to forgive and to remove that from our hearts so that we can go forward walking as Jesus walked, loving as Jesus loved, recklessly, unabandoned love. One of the beautiful things about coming to the table, which is what we're going to prepare to do in just a moment. One of the beautiful things about coming to the table is that none of us in this room, not one of us, is worthy on our own, apart from the grace and love of Christ, to come to this table. None of us are welcome without the love and invitation and grace of Christ. And yet, thanks be to God, we are invited. We are welcome. And we come to the table walking alongside our brother and sister who has also been invited and who is also welcome, regardless of what their past and scars reveal. And so I want you all to know as we prepare to gather together at the table that all are welcome. If you recognize your need for grace and your need for Christ, you are welcome to this table. All are unworthy, yet all are welcome. So we pray, Heavenly Father, Lord Jesus, we pray this morning, we acknowledge this morning that your body was broken so that we, who are all outsiders, We're all outsiders. Your body was broken so that we could receive salvation and healing and wholeness and redemption. God, Lord Jesus, we acknowledge this morning that your blood was shed so that we, outsiders, could receive full, redemptive, and restorative life in Christ. So God, as we prepare to come to this table, we ask you, Lord, search our hearts. Right here in this moment, Lord, search our hearts. Show us the error in our ways. Cleanse us, O God. Bring our empty, broken bodies to this table so that we can walk away filled by you, going back out into the world to empty ourselves for the sake of the other, for the sake of the unwanted and the unloved. It's only through your power and through the glorious, holy mystery of this sacred moment. And we pray this, we thank you, Lord. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. So if you're helping this morning, I'm gonna invite you to come. And we're gonna do this as we have been doing this each week recently, where you all will be dismissed one row at a time. And you'll be invited to come forward. But first and foremost, what I would like to do is ask if there is anyone who is not able to come forward. 
And I'd like to ask you to raise your hand so that I can come and serve you where you are. If that is you, please raise your hand this morning. The table is set and you are welcome. Please come. you are served let's sing this together for us to remember our own uncleanness our own sinfulness it really helps to start from there and that allows God's love to flow through us to others once we humble ourselves before him let's do that this morning
Friends, on the night that our Lord was betrayed, he gathered at the table with his disciples. And he said to them, this is my body, and it's broken for you. May you take and eat and be thankful this morning. And in the same way, after supper, he took the cup and he said, This is my blood. This is the blood of the new covenant that is poured out for you for the forgiveness of sins. Friends, may you take and drink and be thankful this morning. Let's sing this chorus together this morning. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. When we say amen, I don't know if you know this or not, but what you are saying, what it means is, let it be so. Let it be so with us. Let it be so with us. Amen. Well, before you get right back up and leave, (laughs) I want to share a few quick announcements with you. Uh, This month, the month of July... July, because that's crazy, for the month of July, we are collecting for Operation Christmas Child drawstring backpacks. If you aren't sure what a drawstring backpack is, ask someone around you and we'll find someone that can explain that to you because if you haven't seen it, you won't know. It's probably a little odd sounding, but a drawstring backpack um, and school supplies. So any kind of school supplies, um, pens, pencils, markers, crayons, things like that. I think there's a detailed list out in the foyer, and there is one in a newsletter, in my newsletter that's sent out. So that's what we're collecting for the month of July. Drop those off in the tote that is in the foyer. You guys are doing wonderful. You are showing up and showing out. Let's keep it up. Um, the office will be closed tomorrow as we celebrate July 4th. I hope you all have a wonderful day with your families and friends celebrating. Hope you guys have some rest, get some rest on that day. And finally, uh, Restore Network is having their back-to-school bash in August, and volunteers are always needed, never enough. So uh, if you are interested in finding out how you can serve and help, then scan the QR code that is listed around the building, uh, displayed around the building, and find out how you can sign up and help. Okay? So, I'm going to ask you to stand one more time. I know, someone just said the other day to me, I won't say who, but he's not here, and his name rhymes with who, and he says, you know, you just have a stand up and sit down all the time. It makes my legs and my knees hurt, and I said, I'm sorry. (laughs) I can't, I haven't found a way around it yet, so make sure you give him a hard time about that, but in all seriousness, brothers and sisters in Christ... May you go in the grace and peace of our Lord. May you know that you are loved 
You are seen, you are wanted, and you are welcome. May you make it your life's mission that everyone you come in contact with would know that they are seen, they are loved, and they are welcome. Go in his power and grace. You are dismissed. Have a wonderful day.